You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, a podcast from a Dublin City Council symposium on the history of the Abbey of St. Thomas the Martyr. The Abbey of St. Thomas the Martyr was founded in the 12th century and played a pivotal role in the religious and political affairs of Dublin City until its dissolution in 1539. A weekend of events organised by Dublin City Council celebrating the Abbey and its history took place in October 2017 and this podcast is taken from the symposium which took place in St. Catherine's Church, Thomas Street on October 14th. Podcasts from the symposium were produced by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub and are now available at historyhub.ie forward slash Thomas Abbey. This podcast features Michael Staunton, Associate Professor of History at University College Dublin. His paper, Thomas Beckett and the Invasion of Ireland, was introduced by Professor Howard Clark, formerly of the UCD School of History. Now we turn to history from archaeology and we're moving nearer to uh, a figure who will be very dominant in our thinking today, Thomas Beckett. And the speaker about that subject is the expert in these islands on the whole subject of Thomas Beckett. Um, He also has just produced a major work on on 12th century chronicle literature uh, of of this part of the world. Uh, He's Michael Staunton uh, of the School of History and Archives in UCD. He was uh, a colleague of mine when I was still there. He's still there, of course. Uh, And so I now invite Michael to talk to us about Thomas Beckett and the invasion of Ireland. Thank you, Howard, for that introduction, and I'd also like to thank the organisers for putting together such an excellent occasion today. I'm going to start with Canterbury Cathedral on the 29th of December, 1170. The time is about four o'clock in the afternoon. It's getting dark. In the cathedral church, uh, the monks, or some of them, are singing vespers when they hear a commotion at the door. And they see their archbishop, Thomas Beckett, uh, being rushed into the sanctuary of the church. Soon after that, they start to hear loud clattering, as the clattering of armed men themselves bursting into the sanctuary of Canterbury Cathedral. They come in fully armed, swords drawn, some of them with hatchets to break down doors. They're wearing visors, so all you can see is the slot with their eyes. And they shout out, where is Beckett, traitor to the king? At this point, a number of the monks and the clerks scatter, they hide behind altars. Thomas Beckett himself advances and he says, here I am, not a traitor, uh, but the archbishop. There's an altercation between them. At one point, one of the uh, knights hits Thomas on, on his shoulder and says, go on, you ran away before, run away. This is a reference to his many years of exile in France from which he had recently returned. Uh, 
Beckett says, I'm not going to flee again. It seems that they were there to arrest him. And they do say, come with us outside the church. And he refuses. Exactly what happened next is unclear. It may be that one of the knights tried to grab him and he pushed him back. Thomas was tall. Uh, he, was, he was somebody who was a tough character. And he may have pushed and knocked this knight back. The knight swung his sword, struck at him. And as he's striking at him, he cuts the arm of, one, of a, a clerk who had put up his arm to block the blow. But it hits Thomas at the top of his head. Another knight strikes another blow and Beckett falls to his knees and falls onto his face. And finally, a third blow is so ferocious that the sword is smashed against the pavement floor. In the final indignity, one of those who was with the knights, apparently a defrocked clerk, took the point of his sword and scattered Thomas's blood and brains over the floor of the cathedral. It's impossible to understand the impact of Thomas Beckett's death without getting those details of how violent it was and also the circumstances in which it happened. This was one of the most famous men in the Christian world. His controversy with Henry II had been in people's minds for the previous seven or eight years. The murder occurred in the sanctuary of the Mother Church of England. As John of Salisbury, one of Thomas's clerks, said, the innocent champion of the liberty of the church was murdered in the Mother Church of the Kingdom before Christ's altar among his fellow priests and troops of monks. And it happened in a country that was highly developed, where things like martyrdom seemed to be a thing of the past. The other thing is that the knights who killed Thomas Beckett claimed to be acting in the name of the King Henry II. And Henry II was immediately blamed for this murder. William Archbishop of Sens, in January 1171, as soon as he'd heard the news, with the unanimous support of the French bishops and abbots, laid an interdict on Henry's continental lands. And what that meant was that no church services could, uh, could be held. It was a very serious sanction. And he wrote a letter to the Pope and described Henry as another Herod who had dispatched his executioners to kill the innocent. One of the amazing things is that initially Henry II was entirely unrepentant or almost entirely unrepentant. He wrote a letter to the Pope complaining that Thomas had broken the peace, had carried fire and sword into his kingdom, and it was only in response to such impudence that these men had fallen upon him and, I say it with grief, killed him. And one of Henry's men, or one of his um, uh, loyal uh, prelates, Arnold of Lisieux, sent another letter saying that Thomas had been murdered by those he had driven mad by his actions. And Henry's only sin 
was perhaps that he had disliked the archbishop. Thomas's allies and Henry's allies raced to the Pope, who was then in Frascati. And Thomas's clerks got there first. The Pope confirmed the interdict on Henry's continental lands, and he also banned Henry personally from entering a church. The king's envoys, seeing this disastrous situation, took it upon themselves to uh, make a concession. They agreed, they swore, that Henry would accept whatever judgment the papal court made. And the Pope arranged to send two cardinals to Normandy to judge the case. This news started filtering back to Henry in the early summer of 1171, that he was going to have to face uh, judgment by cardinals for his role in the murder of St. Thomas. St. Thomas, as a number of people were now hailing him as. And at the same time, Henry started to get other disturbing news. And that was that Dermot McMurrah, the King of Leinster, had died. And his succession was being claimed by Strongbow, who had gone over to Ireland to help Dermot regain his kingdom. So now Henry had on his western flank a large area of land under the control of one of his vassals, and one of his vassals with whom he wasn't especially close. So in August 1171, Henry crossed from Normandy into England, and then on the 16th of October, <clears throat> after some weeks in South Wales, he crossed to Ireland. So Henry II's entrance to Ireland, the first case of an English monarch coming to Ireland and establishing his authority there, happened in the immediate wake of the murder of Thomas Becket. So what was the connection? Was there a connection? Certainly a lot of contemporaries said that there was. A number of writers, admittedly hostile writers, said that Henry had gone to Ireland to escape the judgment of the Pope and the Pope's envoys for his role in the murder of Thomas. Thomas's clerk and confidant, Herbert of Bossom, writing to the cardinals, presumably when Henry was in Ireland, referred to Henry as the Satan of the North, who is said to have fled to the ends of the earth from the sight of the church, wishing in this way to frustrate your holy intention, as is the evidence so far, and beat back the pressure of the laboring church. But Herbert says that he doubts that fleeing the face of God in this way, the king will escape the hand of God, who is said to be subjecting him to various and many hardships. A monk of Christchurch, Canterbury, Gervais, writing some years later, uh, in the late 1180s or the 1190s, says that Henry was motivated in going to Ireland by three reasons. First of all, there was the appeal from Strongbow to come over. Secondly, there was an appeal from the native lords of Ireland to come over. But he adds the third and most important reason was that he should more easily evade a sentence of interdict were it to be imposed or in a more hidden way to observe it. And that's referring to the, the further threat that this interdict on his lands in France would be extended to England.
Our most detailed accounts of these events are, of course, by Gerald of Wales, who came to Ireland in the 1180s. When Gerald wrote his best-known works, the topography and the invasion of Ireland, he wrote them at a time when he was a clerk to Henry II, and he was an enthusiastic supporter of Henry II. However, his relationship with Henry soon soured. And in a quite obscure work, The Life of St. Remigius, which survives from in a version from the early 13th century, he includes a highly colored attack on the king. He says that the king fled from Normandy into England and hastened into Wales and then crossed to Ireland. And he, on the way, Henry says to Bishop Bartholomew of Exeter about the cardinals, if they want to talk to me, let them come to me in Ireland. And he said that it was if neither divine nor Roman power held sway in Ireland. But then Gerald goes on and he quotes Psalm 138, saying, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And he also uses the line, the wicked man flees when no one pursues, which is a particularly clever line when you realize that this was the accusation thrown at Thomas himself when he fled into exile uh, during his dispute with Henry II. How reliable are these interpretations of the king's motives? They are hostile witnesses. Um, But nonetheless, this is a somewhat plausible explanation. Certainly, Henry remained unrepentant at this time. And if anything, at least it was a good opportunity uh, to, to go to Ireland at this particular moment. Certainly, it seems that that's how various contemporaries regarded it. So I said that these um, envoys were meant to come to Normandy to judge King Henry. And they arrived in Normandy at the end of 1171 when he was in Ireland. And hearing this, they sent messengers to recall him. And he did so. Henry left Ireland in April 1172 and made straight for Normandy for negotiations. One account of these negotiations says that at one point when the negotiations broke down, Henry said, stormed out of the discussions with the cardinals and said, I'm returning to Ireland where I have much pressing business. Nonetheless, on the 21st of April, they came to a settlement. Henry publicly admitted that he was the effective cause of the archbishop's death, but swore he had neither ordered nor desired the killing and was very sorry when he had heard the news. And he agreed that he would accept any penance imposed on him. So the legates uh, imposed terms that he should restore possessions to the Church of Canterbury that he had taken away, that he should abolish all evil customs, the cause of the dispute with Thomas, and also that he should go on crusade. And we can see that if the church gained certain benefits from this arrangement, Henry gained immediate benefits. In September 1172, the Pope sent certain letters 
to Henry, to the Irish bishops and archbishops, and uh, to others. Writing to the Irish bishops and archbishops, the Pope says that he has learned from reliable sources that the Irish have fallen away from fear of God and reverence for the Christian faith and are infected with shocking abuses. But he understands that King Henry of England, stirred by divine inspiration with his united forces, has subjected to his dominion that people, a barbarous one, uncivilized and ignorant of the divine law. And overjoyed that the evils practiced in Ireland are starting to diminish, the Pope offers thanks to God who has granted the king such a great victory and prays that through him, that most undisciplined and untamed nation may continue in the same way. And he urges the clergy to support Henry in all of this. Similarly, writing to the king himself, he expresses his joy at the news of Henry's glorious and pious triumph over the people of Ireland. He says, this is a people who have wandered unbridled through the steeps of vice, who have renounced all reverence for the Christian faith and virtue, and who destroy themselves in mutual slaughter. Though no Roman emperor has ever conquered Ireland, God has allowed King Henry to extend his power over this uncivilized and undisciplined race. So how can we explain this turnaround? How did this Henry II, the Herod who ordered the killing of the Holy Innocent, within a couple of years become the Christian king who is bringing true religion to this barbarous and ir irreligious people? Certainly there was a wish for stability. There had been that, that there in the English church when Becket was disputing with the king. There were many amongst the clergy who believed that it was dangerous for the church uh, to have a breach with the king in this way. The Pope himself uh, was in a difficult position um, uh, for various reasons. Uh, and he, uh, there were reasons why he should look to Henry II as somebody who would bring uh, a reformed version of Christianity to Ireland. We can even see it in the, in the Synod of Cashel, when the Irish clergy themselves agreed to submit to the rule of Henry II. The fullest expression of this desire for reconciliation after Becket's murder comes in the rebellion of 1173 and 1174. And this was also a result of the instability that faced Henry after the murder of Becket. In 1173, and the, according to some, this had been plotted while Henry was away in Ireland, his wife, Eleanor, his sons, Henry and Richard and Geoffrey, the King of France, the King of Scotland, the Count of Flanders, various lords united against him, seeing a vulnerability there in Henry for the first time. But this rebellion fizzled out after about a year and a half. And contemporaries believe that the crucial event in Henry's defeat of the rebellion was his decision to visit the tomb of St. Thomas in Canterbury and get down on his knees and pray for an evening before the tomb 
of his former friend and former enemy. And this as well shows that there was a desire for reconciliation. This was presented as Thomas miraculously for, uh, pr miraculously bringing an end to the war. Thanks to Henry's penance, he brought together uh, the people of England. Father and son are reconciled. Archbishop and king are reconciled. The whole country is reconciled. But not everybody saw it like this. People continued to criticize Henry for his role in Becket's murder. And if Becket could be taken as a symbol, used as a symbol for stability, used as a symbol of somebody even supporting King Henry, he could also be used as a symbol for those who criticized Henry's invasion of Ireland. And there are many people who did. One of those is a monk of Canterbury called William. William of Canterbury uh, put together a collection of miracles. He sat at Thomas's shrine in Canterbury and he recorded various miracles uh, of St. Thomas's intervention. And a lot of these miracles concern Ireland. In one of his miracle stories, St. Thomas appears in a vision to a fisherman in Gloucester. And this is at the time when Henry II was remaining in Normandy before he had gone to Ireland. And Thomas said to the fisherman, your king is fleeing from before me and no, no good will come to him unless he visits my tomb and does penance. Henry rapidly makes his way towards Ireland and the fisherman again sees a vision of St. Thomas who says, you must go and tell him not to run away from me. However, the fisherman was too nervous to do this and Henry went on to Ireland, fleeing from, uh, fleeing from the saint. Um, William of Canterbury also makes numerous references to miracles that involved those knights and various soldiers and other people who went over with Henry II to take part in this invasion of Ireland. And virtually all of these references are critical of the invasion. The first of his Irish-themed stories begins with the apparently sarcastic words when the magnificent king of the English was infecting Ireland, possibly an allusion to various writings, including the papal bull Laudabiliter, uh, which supposedly uh, um, allowed Henry to invade Ireland, and also these letters of Pope Alexander that I've just mentioned, uh, which refer to Henry as your magnificence. There's a story of a soldier whose old wound from a lance flared up when he left his native soil and, as William puts it, presumed to disturb the Irish. Realizing that he was being punished uh, for taking part in this uh, adventure, the knight said, the barbarians are nothing of my affair, the barbarians being the Irish. And realizing that the martyr was withdrawing him from the war to turn him to good, he abandoned the campaign and made a pilgrimage to Canterbury, where he was healed. There's a report of various men who were imprisoned 
by Henry II's chief forester because they deserted the Irish expedition and escaped, uh, but they were freed thanks to St. Thomas. Um, other knights were disturbed by wild winds and rain when they were sailing home from Ireland. And William of Canterbury says that this was the saint being displeased at those who had presumed to disturb their neighbours. There are various accounts also in Gerald of Wales of those involved in the invasion being, being struck down by saints. But William of Canterbury is unusual in not just in having Thomas as the person who's responsible for these, but for directly making criticism of the invasion. The most sustained criticism of the Irish campaign comes in the account of a knight who died unconfessed on the expedition and on his deathbed called out to the Virgin and St. Thomas and was miraculously restored to life. And William of Canterbury refers to him as one who without cause disturbed his defenceless neighbours, a nation which, however uncultivated and barbarous, nevertheless cultivated the faith and observed Christian religion. Now these words, uncultivated, barbarous, echo various descriptions of the Irish at this time. You have it in Gerald of Wales, you have it in Bernard of Clairvaux, who in his life of Malachy described the Irish in these terms. You have it in these papal letters. It's the justification for an invasion of Ireland that these are barbarous and they're uncultivated in the faith. However, they also make reference to an earlier authority. And this is Bede, the, the most influential uh, historian of early medieval England. Bede writing of an invasion of Ireland by a Northumbrian king in the year 684, says King Ecfrith, king of Northumbria, sent an army to Ireland and they wretchedly devastated a harmless race that had always been most friendly to the English. The islanders resisted as far as they were able, imploring the merciful aid of God and invoking his vengeance. And the following year, in punishment for this sin, King Ecfrith was killed when he rashly chose to attack the Picts. So William of Canterbury, and he's not the only one who does this amongst English writers writing about the invasion of Ireland, invokes these words of Bede to say, these people may be barbarous, but they are a friendly people. They are fellow Christians, and it is not justified for Christians to attack other Christians in this way. One of the other things that William of Canterbury does is that he gives attention to Irish people who are healed by St. Thomas. Um, there's a case, for example, of an Irish, a young Irish monk who goes to Canterbury, is given money by his fellow monks to go and buy a file of Thomas's blood, which was usually the way that, that, uh, uh, that Thomas's relics spread uh, throughout the Christian world. So he goes and buys this, but he finds one just rolling on the ground that somebody has dropped. So instead of giving his money to Canterbury, he picks this up, puts it around his neck. And 
As he's walking out happily, he discovers that his neck is swelling into a terrible pain. And he finally realizes where this is coming from. He does penance at, at Thomas's tomb. Various other accounts of, uh, for example, an Irish monk who uh, suffered from leprosy and went to the shrine and was cured. He received a vision of the martyr striking him with a pastoral staff and addressing him in Irish. This is St. Thomas speaking Irish with the words, Harry, Airy, knock flantu. If you don't know what that means, nobody else does. Um, but William translates it as, get up, Irishman, you are healed. So presumably it's a corruption of Araig Aranuk, a slantu. But for our purposes, I think the most interesting one is one that makes reference to the cult of St. Thomas in Ireland. Now, another witness, William of Canterbury, refers to an intriguing case of a book of miracles circulating in Ireland. Now, William Fitzstephen is, is writing uh, about uh, 1176, 1177. So if we believe him, there's a book of miracles circulating in Ireland at this time. We don't know whether it's, it derives from Ireland or not. But here's the one that I think is interesting for our purpose. William of Canterbury says that... Um, a certain Walter, fighting for Strongbow in Ireland, left two horses which he had worn out in plundering the region within the precinct of the chapel of the martyr Thomas near the city of Dublin. The horses were stolen, but after the intervention of the martyr, the thief was miraculously led back to the spot by the intervention of the martyr. So what is this chapel of the martyr Thomas near the city of Dublin? If this Walter is fighting for Strongbow, it must be earlier than the foundation of the Abbey of St. Thomas the Martyr, which was founded by William Fitzaudelin in March 1177. Strongbow had died uh, nearly a year earlier. Miracle accounts aren't necessarily the most trustworthy witnesses, to precise dates. But it is possible that if William of Canterbury's date is right, that even before the foundation of uh, the, the Abbey of St. Thomas, that there was a shrine. If you think of it, it's, it's obviously on a thoroughfare just outside the city. And a shrine of St. Thomas at that location. That sounds to me remarkably like the spot that we're standing near today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Dublin City Council's Medieval Symposium on the history of the Abbey of St. Thomas the Martyr. You can listen to many more podcasts recorded at the conference at historyhub.ie forward slash Thomas Abbey.